When we were just young boys, my mischievous best friend suggested that we conduct a little experiment. Now, this is the same best friend who earlier that same day had held out his hand to me as if he needed assistance in climbing over the electric fence around the barnyard. So I took his hand and he immediately took hold of the electric wire. His body became the conductor through which the electricity went to shock my body. Did I mention this was my best friend? Now you understand a little. Anyway, I was a little bit hesitant to agree to this experiment, but I agreed, and so he went into his mom's kitchen, and he got baking soda and vinegar and an empty Cool Whip container. And then he put the baking soda and the vinegar in the container, and he put the lid on the container, and he shook the container vigorously and put it on the ground. Now, not being the chemist then that I am now, I didn't really know what to expect when you mix baking soda and vinegar or what was supposed to happen, but I found out. And I learned three lessons on that day. Lesson number one, some things can't be contained. Lesson number two, you should stand back when mixing baking soda and vinegar in a container and put a lid on it because an explosion will occur, the lid will blow off, and the contents will burst forth. And since we spent the next hour, or at least until the box of baking soda was empty, toying with the ratios to get bigger and better explosions, I learned lesson three, the bigger explosions are better. Listen, for almost 50 years now, my mind has repeatedly gone back to that experiment whenever I think about the work of the Holy Spirit. Every lesson I learned that day is true about the Spirit of God. The work of the Spirit in us, it cannot be contained. And what the Spirit works in us will burst forth from us. And the bigger the explosion of fruit that he produces in us, the better. The better for us and the better for all those whom the Lord is pleased to bring into our lives. And so by the power of the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit must burst forth from you and from me. And that's what I want us to talk about as we return this morning to the Gospel of John, the 15th chapter. So I ask you now, if you have your Bibles with you, to take those out. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And when you've found John chapter 15, let's stand together so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, our Lord Jesus is speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. Father, once again, as always, we request now your aid, the power of your Spirit. To join your word and in that place where it meets in our hearts, Lord, pour out your blessing, we pray, by making us people who are more and more like you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Week before last, when last we looked at this passage, we arrived at what I pray for you is the incontrovertible conclusion that bearing fruit for Christ is not optional. In verse 5, Jesus tells us the goal is that we bear much fruit. Then again in verse 8, He very pointedly says that bearing fruit is the very thing that proves that you are a disciple of Christ, that you are a follower of Christ, that you love Jesus if you bear fruit in order to establish how much fruit bearing is central to what God has called us to to what he has designed and equipped us for we took this world wind tour through scripture beginning with the very first two words that the first ever human ears ever heard after God had created Adam and Eve in his own image after he had breathed his spirit the breath of his life into them after he had blessed them he spoke these first words be fruitful first words first command of God From that creation moment, then we sped through the patriarchs, the prophets, and the Psalms, and we saw over and over again God reiterating his call on his people to be fruitful. And to impress this calling on his people, God refers to them over and over as the vine, his vine, his choice vine that must bear fruit. So this morning... We need to begin to define what fruit is. Thankfully, Scripture doesn't leave us on our own to our own imaginations or our own definitions as to what fruit is. Scripture gives us clear examples, clear definitions. 
And this morning we're going to consider only one kind of fruit that we must produce. But in order to understand this one fruit and the weight of it and the import of it, we need to put these verses that we've read from John chapter 15 into their greater context, which is often referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. John chapter 13 through John chapter 17. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells the disciples, before he tells them to produce fruit, he, he, he makes them this promise. And it's a promise that, that had to be astonishing when the disciples heard it. If they even had the ability to grasp what Jesus was saying to them. Because you know what? The disciples didn't know that this was Jesus' farewell dinner with them. The disciples didn't know that Jesus was immediately going to go to the cross. Nevertheless, if they were able to comprehend Jesus' words to them, they must have been astonished and dumbstruck to hear Jesus say, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit dwelling with, the Spirit dwelling in the disciples, astonishing, dumbfounding. Jesus continues in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We, Jesus, and the Father making their home in the disciples. Astonishing, dumbfounding. Jesus continues in verse 26. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit teaching them all things. Astonishing. Dumbfounding. Why? Why astonishing? Why dumbfounding? Well, because up until this point, the disciples only associated the Holy Spirit with the exceptional, with the uncommon, with the extraordinary, with unique displays of power. They knew the story of creation. The earth was formless, void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's the Holy Spirit creating powerfully. They knew the Spirit of God came upon Joseph so that Joseph could interpret those strange dreams of Pharaoh. They knew the story of how the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to Moses and took some of the spirit that was resting on Moses and put that same spirit on the 70 elders who were with them. And as soon as the spirit was upon them, they began to prophesy. They knew the story of how God had given Joshua his spirit so that Joshua might lead God's people in conquest of the promised land. 
they knew that God had sent his spirit on every artist, on every craftsman, so that every beautiful piece of art in the tabernacle, every intricately carved piece of furniture, every piece of hammered gold, every embedded precious stone, every luxuriously woven curtain and tapestry, all were designed by the Holy Spirit of God and executed by His power that rested upon each artist. They knew the story of how the Spirit of God had come upon the judges of Israel, particularly Samson. And when the Spirit of God rushed upon him, Samson was able to tear that line apart with his bare hands. Samson was able to burst the ropes that held him as if they were flax. They knew the Spirit of God came upon kings. The prophet and priest Samuel took that horn of oil and he anointed David over king of Israel. And Scripture says that the Spirit of God rushed upon David from that day forward. They knew the Spirit of God rested upon priests like Zechariah, who Scripture says was clothed with the Spirit of God. And surely they knew the promise, as you and I know the promise. Made to Zerubbabel. The man given the daunting task of rebuilding that temple that had been one of the wonders of the ancient world. When God said to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. They knew the spirit of God inspired the writing of the word of God. These are the last words of David, King David, the author of so many psalms. He says, the spirit of God speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. And then, of course, lastly, but most importantly, they knew the Spirit of God would be upon the Messiah. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. In Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. So the disciples knew that the Spirit of God worked beautifully and powerfully and creatively and mysteriously. But only in some seemingly special ones or important ones. And then only for a very specific purpose. And for a specific time to accomplish something of great significance. And now they hear Jesus saying that this Spirit of God, who acted in these monumental moments in history, the Spirit who created the universe, inspired the wonder, the temple, the Spirit that came upon deliverers and priests and judges and kings and messiahs would dwell in them. Common fishermen like Peter and Andrew and James and John or despised tax collector like Matthew. Astonishing. Dumbfounding. But isn't that the point? It requires something. It requires someone of astonishing power to enable the disciples 
to produce fruit. Now it's possible that you and I have ceased to be astonished by the reality that the Spirit of God indwells us. It's possible that we have ceased to be astonished by both the power of the Spirit and the necessity of the work of the Spirit in our lives. It's possible that we have ceased to be astonished or dumbfounded by the fruit that must be produced in us before any fruit can be produced through us. And so now, in order to fulfill this promise to define what fruit is, what must be produced, and in order to astound and dumbfound us a little, I'm going to define this first fruit and the only fruit at which we will look this morning. So when we're done with this one, we're done. But I'm going to define that fruit this way. The characteristics, the characteristics produced when the Holy Spirit indwells us. And while that's certainly more remarkable and of much greater consequence than mixing baking soda and vinegar, nevertheless, when the Spirit of God joins our spirit, an explosion takes place. An explosion that cannot be contained. Fruit will be produced. It will burst forth from that explosion. And guess what? The bigger the explosion, the bigger the explosion, the more profuse the fruit that is born. And so the most famous passage in Scripture that defines this explosion, you know well, it's Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For you and for me to have this fruit, to display these characteristics requires nothing less than the astonishing work of the Spirit of God. Because to have this fruit in our lives requires a radical change in our natures. Listen, you have got to understand that. I've got to understand that. Oh, those of us who may think too highly of ourselves, this fruit of the Spirit is not native to our hearts. These characteristics are not naturally occurring in any one of us. These characteristics must be transplanted by the Spirit of God. And if you and I don't understand that, we'll not be astounded. We won't be dumbfounded by our need for the Spirit or for the work that He does in us. The explosion that occurs in us, must blast away the old and produce the new. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to put this fruit of the Spirit verse in the context in which it occurs. A few verses prior, Galatians 
5, the Apostle Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Listen, this is our reality. All of us. We have these two natures within us, and these two natures are opposed to each other. One nature desires the things of the flesh. The other nature desires the things of the Spirit. And so Paul continues, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit is. Fruit is born in you and fruit is born in me only when the desires of the Spirit supplant the desires of our flesh. And I will remind you, as I remind myself, that this radical change from flesh to spirit, it's not optional, right? Because bearing fruit is not optional. And so you can see with astonishment the extraordinary work that the Spirit has to do in you and what He has to do in me because in reality, the task of the Spirit is to make ones like we are into ones like Christ is who perfectly, perfectly bears this fruit in prolific perfection. And so it always seems to come back to this question, always, for you and for me. How much do we love Jesus? How much do we want to be like the one who loves us so much? How much do you want to be like Jesus? Because, quite frankly, he amazes you so much. Does Jesus love? (laughs) Yeah, he's loved us well. He loved us so much He came for us. He came to us to die for us. Joy, does He have it? Yeah, for the joy set before Him. He endured the cross. Peace, oh yeah. The Jesus who was asleep in the boat in the midst of the storm woke up. And what did He say? Peace. Be still. Patience, yes. Scripture says the Lord is patient. You know why? He doesn't want anyone to perish. Kindness. Oh, yeah. Romans 2 says that the kindness of our God leads to our repentance. Goodness? Yeah. Look at the table and taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Faithfulness? Yeah. Every promise that God ever made, according to Scripture, every promise He ever made finds its yes its fulfillment in Christ. Gentleness, come unto me, says Jesus. All who are heavy laden, 
I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Self-control. What did Jesus pray in the garden? Father, not my will, but your will be done. And when they came to arrest him in the garden, he said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But Jesus never made that appeal, did he? Because in the ultimate act of self-control, he hung on the cross and he stayed on the cross so that you and I might be saved and so that you and I might be indwelled by the Spirit of this one. So that you and I might become like Christ from one degree of glory to the next or from some fruit to much fruit. The Spirit has extraordinary work to do in each of us so that we might bear the fruit of Christ-likeness. Puritan Thomas Boston writes, The water comes pure from the fountain, the Spirit. But running through a muddy channel such as every saint here is, it cannot be accepted in heaven, but is purified and sweetened by the intercession of Christ. That gives me so much hope because I know my channel is muddy and yours is muddy too. We're never in this life going to display perfectly the fruit of the Spirit. What we produce is going to be bruised and damaged, but take heart because Jesus intercedes for us and He purifies and He sweetens before the Father, the fruit we seek to produce. Have hope. Isaiah 35, the desert shall rejoice and bloom like the crocus. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Is that good news? Jesus said, whoever believes in me As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. That's you and that's me. And through the power of the Spirit of God, an explosion does take place in us. It cannot be contained. The Spirit can change us, can change our natures. And the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of that change will burst forth from us to the glory of God and for the blessing and the good of all those around us. Astonishing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work of your Spirit. Keep working in power within us, we pray so that our lives might burst forth with the fruit of Christ-likeness. 
For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.